You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. We are finishing up our series uh, that we have titled Pain and Suffering. And we've been talking for the past few weeks about how in order to live well, we must learn how to suffer well. Our experience tells us, whether you're in this room and you would call yourself a Bible-believing Christian or not, everybody uh, realizes that we live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be, and everybody suffers. And so we've been learning together that uh, how to grieve honestly our pain, and also how to trust God in the midst of our pain, and trust all that He is doing through our pain and suffering for His glory and for our good. And so that's our hope in this series. And as we close the series... Uh, I want to look at John chapter 8, so if you'll look with me there, we'll start reading in verse 21, and we will read through verse 30, and this is Jesus speaking. And so it says, uh, he said to them again, verse 21, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said to him, will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the very beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard uh, what I have heard from him. And they didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which is a reference to the cross, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Would you join me in praying uh, for our time together this morning? Father, uh, that is my prayer, that as we hear these things from you, these things about life and about death, about sin and about salvation, that many would believe in you. God, I, I, I believe that you have brought me, you've brought each of us into this place this morning uh, because you have something you want to say to us. And I'm very mindful um, in, in John chapter 6, just a few chapters before this, whenever uh, hundreds of people walk away from you, Jesus, and you look at your disciples and say, do you want to walk away from me too? And Peter says, where else would we go You are the only one who has the words of life. So, Father, these are life-giving words that you want to speak to us this morning. And I pray that you would do that. God, just as you breathe life into us in the very beginning, would you uh, breathe eternal life into us now? I pray for hearts in this room that are dead in their sin, that they would be awakened unto new life in your spirit. I pray for those who are uh, just sort of numb and functionally dead in their passivity and their lack of pursuit of you. Um, I pray, God, that you would wake them up 
break through our distractions, break through the walls we have built, and bring us into a place where we are trusting and treasuring Jesus for our life, because literally it depends on it. So God, come and do what I could never do, no amount of rhetoric or yelling or spitting or screaming from some uh, preacher uh, could ever do. I pray that you would speak and you would bring, bring life and help me to believe the things that I'm trying to share. And I pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. All right, hey, if you know me, then you know that I'm a sucker for Will Ferrell's sense of humor. And now I don't know if immediately that causes you to lose respect for me, gain respect for me, if that disqualifies me from ministry or just makes me normal. But it's true, the dude gets me, he makes me laugh. But now when I think about Will Ferrell, these are all amazing characters. But the character that sticks out to me the most in my mind is a character he played in one of his least popular films back in 2006, which was called Stranger Than Fiction. Raise your hand if you've seen Stranger Than Fiction, right? Love this movie. Not one of his more goofy roles. It's actually a serious role he plays in a dark comedy. So Will Ferrell plays this nerdy IRS agent named Harold who begins hearing this voice that's narrating his life while he's brushing his teeth, while he's getting ready for work. Um, it's annoying to Harold. It's just driving him crazy. In one scene, he looks at a friend of his and he says, this voice isn't telling me anything to do. It's telling me what I've already done, uh, but more accurately and with better vocabulary. And then at, at one point, you know, the, the kind of the whole plot of the story hinges on this, this tiny little moment where he slightly adjusts the time on his watch. And when he does that, he hears this voice, the narrator says in his head, little did he know that this seemingly simple act would result in his imminent death. So as you can imagine, like he's totally freaking out in this moment because the voice has been so accurate in describing his life that he knows it's right in describing his death. And he now knows, he now lives with the fact that this, this little incident is going to lead to a series of events that's going to result in his imminent death. And so the whole rest of the story is Harold doing anything he can to try to change the end of the story. Anything he can to escape and avoid and deny the, the, the reality of his own death. And everything kind of culminates. The climax of the film is this powerful scene where he's uh, talking with Professor Jules, played by Dustin Hoffman. And uh, Jules just shoots it to him straight. And here's what Jules says to him. He says, I'll put it on the screen. No one wants to die, Harold. But unfortunately, we all do. Harold, listen to me. You will die. Someday, sometime. Heart failure at the bank, choke on a mint, some long, drawn-out disease you've contracted on vacation, you will die. You will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. I'm sorry, but it's the nature of all tragedies, Harold. The hero dies, and the story goes on. Harold is the hero, the protagonist in this story, and yes, just as the voice predicts, he dies in the same way that everybody does in the real story of human history. So the reason why I think this film affected me so deeply, the reason why I think this is such a powerful story is because it's such a personal story. Like Harold, every single person in this room, every single person in this city, and every single person in this world is right now, in this moment, facing the imminent reality of our own death. And, like Harold, everybody in this room is desperately trying to do something to change the end of the story. 
Sociologists talk about how more than any other society that's ever existed, we live in the denial of death. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. It's what's driving our distractions, our busyness. On a subconscious level, everything we do is somehow motivated by the desire to escape and avoid and deny the problem of death. But as the great prophet Bruce Springsteen once sang on his uh, Nebraska record, which is my favorite, everything dies, baby. That's a fact. Isn't it ironic that a fact of life is that you will die? And, you know, the psalmist sang this way before the boss. So uh, Psalm 89, 48, the psalmist sings this. Uh, I think we should sing more songs like this. He says, uh, What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? And what he's saying is, hey, man, in the real story of human history, death is the great equalizer. It does, death is no respecter of persons. It doesn't care how wealthy you are, how healthy you are, how cautious you are, how prestigious you are, how religious you are, how young or how old you are. Death is coming for us all. The question is, are you ready for it? And we, we live in the denial of death for a while, but inevitably some event always comes our way that shakes us awake. And many of you in the room are painfully aware of that right now. Um, at some point in your life, you've received a diagnosis. You've walked away from a car accident that could have been a lot worse. Maybe you should have never. You have no idea how I walked away from that. Um, You've lost people in your life who've loved you well and whom you've loved deeply. I had lunch with one of our members this week who said, uh, Do you realize that on Sunday when you're preaching about death, it will be the one-year anniversary to the day of my father's death? He passed away on June 25, 2016. Last night, in this very room, I attended a memorial service for one of our members who just lost his father last week. The reality is, death is coming for us all. And here's what Solomon says, and we'll use this to kind of transition to our text. Solomon says this in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Death is the destiny of every man The living should take this to heart. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to help you and I want to help me take death to heart. In other words, I want to prepare you to die and to die well. The great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter once said that a pastor's main job is to prepare people for how to die well. And and as we come to a close in our pain and suffering series, this is the place where it's appropriate for us to end. Because all pain and suffering is screaming at you that you are mortal and that you will someday die. And so what I want to do is I want to help us prepare for how to die well, which is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is preparing you for death and for dying well. Here's the big idea that Jesus wants us to wrestle with this morning. This is what I want to put forth. Everybody dies, and there are really only two ways to die. I know there's a popular TV show called A Thousand Ways to Die. That's bogus. There's really only two ways to die. This is what Jesus wants you to see. You either die in your sins or you die in the Savior. That's the only two options. Everybody dies, baby. That's a fact. And there are only two ways to die. You either die in your sins or you die in the Savior. And so as we take death to heart this morning, 
and we prepare for uh, how to live well and how to die well, I just want to unpack those two realities. And I want to ask the question, uh, what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, you'll die in your sins? What does Jesus mean when he talks about dying in the Savior? So can we, can we go there together and kind of unpack that? Let's do that. Um, so let's, let's turn our attention to that place now. We'll start in John chapter 8 with the bad news of what it means to die in your sins. Don't worry, we're not going to stay here for the whole sermon. Uh, but you do have to go here and wrestle with the bad news, because if you don't embrace the bad news, then you don't get any good news. So look with me at John chapter 8, and uh, let me set up the context. Uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And he's just been challenged by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's just said one of the most profound statements he's ever makes. Um, he says earlier in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. Jesus says, apart from me, there's only darkness and death. If you will believe in me and you will follow me, you will have life. And all the religious leaders want to do is quibble and argue with him. They're not paying attention to his point at all. And so we get to verse 21, a few verses later, and Jesus reiterates this point to the Pharisees and to us. And this time, he's a whole lot clearer. And so look at what he says in verse 21. It says, he said to them again, he's going to restate his point. I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin." Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews, these are the religious leaders, said to him, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And they still don't get it. They're still not paying attention. They're still not taking this to heart. Don't let this be you. And they said to him, who are you? Jesus says, you still don't get it. I'm everything I've been telling you from the beginning. I'm the Messiah. I'm the light of the world. Believe in me or you will die in your sins. You see this? Three times in this passage, Jesus says, you will die in your sins. Three times. He says it once in verse 21. He says it twice in verse 24. Jesus is not repeating himself because he can't think of anything else to say. Jesus is being emphatic. In the ancient world, when you really want to underline your point and put it in all caps, and you really want to shake people awake and get their attention, one of the ways you do that is you, you speak until you're blue in the face and you repeat yourself. And so Jesus repeats himself. And here's the force of what he's trying to say. If you don't trust in me and in my word that I am who I say I am, and if you don't trust in my work that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, then you will surely die in your sins. And what the religious leaders should have picked up on that Jesus is expecting us to pick up on is that we've heard this before. See, Jesus is is echoing Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and he's connecting these two ideas that we don't like to think about or talk about very much, our sin and our death. And if we're going to take death to heart and actually learn how to die well, we have to understand the relationship between these two and why death is a part of your story and my story. So let's rewind the story. 
I want to leave this place for a second and actually go back to paradise, a place where at one point in time there was no death. If you go all the way back to the beginning, which is what Jesus is hearkening back to, you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see that God creates human beings in his image, and then you read this beautiful statement in chapter 2, verse 7. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of what? Life. And then the man became what? A living creature. Here's the origin of life. Here's what's amazing, man. You know what this is telling us? The single reason that you and I are alive and together in this room this morning, the reason you are existing, the reason you got out of bed this morning, you know, if you're anything like me, you don't even remember how you got here. (laughs) Somehow I'm here. But here's why you're here. The reason you're here, the reason your lungs right now are filling up and contracting with air, the reason that your heart is beating and pumping, pumping blood throughout your body is because God has given you the gift of life. Your lungs are literally filled with the breath of God, the essence of life itself, and He is sustaining your life. And so this is what Jesus is trying to say to us in this moment. Listen, if you don't trust in me, you'll die in your sins. What he's saying to us is from the very beginning, the human story has been trying to teach us one fundamental truth. Your life and my life literally depends upon the person and work of God. Every breath you draw is a gift. Every step you take is a gift. Everything you do literally depends. Life itself depends upon the person and work of God. You can't have life apart from God, which is why God invites us to trust Him in the story and depend on Him in the story when He draws this boundary for us later in Genesis chapter 2. And this is what we read. God says to us, He says, You can have all this stuff to enjoy, right? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, what? Surely die. Or as Professor, Professor Jules says, you will absolutely die. God says, if you don't trust in me, you will absolutely die. I think I want to stop on that for just a second and just pull over and park and hang out because for many of you in this room and for many in our culture, this is where you have a hang up with the God of the Bible. And I kind of get it. I've struggled with this for many years of my life. Why does, he, why does he tell me how to run my life? Why does he put these rules and these regulations and these limitations and these boundaries on me that try to take life from me? And what the scriptures are actually trying to teach you is God is not trying to take life from you when he puts boundaries and limitations on you. He's not trying to take your life. He's trying to save your life. So... Um, You know, if you're a parent, you kind of get this. I love my kids, which is exactly the reason why I won't let them play in the street, right? It's the reason why I make them wear a seatbelt, even though they they punch me in the face when I try to buckle the seatbelt. I don't know what it is about the dadgum seatbelt that they hate so much, but they, they can't stand it. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, hey, man, I'm your father. I get it that you don't think I know how to run life better than you, but I do. And I'm inviting you to trust me in this moment, all right? That I know what's best for you. I kind of created you in a way, right? And I think that the reason you're here kind of depends on me. And I'm inviting you to trust me. And if my kids will listen to my voice 
and trust my voice and do what I say and abide by the boundaries and the restrictions and the limitations that I draw for them, it won't take their life. It'll actually save their life. And so what God is doing in the human story is he's saying, look, man, listen, wherever you find yourself in this moment, the reason you're here is because I gave you life. And the reason I tell you how to run your life is because I know what's best for you. Don't insist on doing life on your own terms. Trust in me. Because when you insist on doing life on your own terms, it kills you. Quite literally, this is what happens in the story. So the story takes this horrible, dark, ominous turn. In Genesis chapter 3, you see this intruder, this enemy, roll up into the garden and starts threatening our very life. Here's what he says to us. He comes up to us and he says to the woman, Hey, did God really say that you can't have the, you know, any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of all these trees in the garden, but God said, Hey, this one tree, you shall not eat of it. Don't even touch it, lest you die. And the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. This, this is, hey man, that wherever you come from, this unites us. This is the core lie that you and I believe all day long about God. This is what gets us into trouble. God's holding out on me. He doesn't love me. He's lying to me. Uh, if, he, if he really loved me, he would let me live life however I want. He would let me have this thing that, that the scriptures say is going to kill me. But like I want it and I deserve it. I work hard. Uh, you know, so I'm going I'm to pursue this. And if God really loved me, he'd let me have this. He's holding out on me. And there's this lie that we can do life on our own terms and have life on our own terms. You will not surely die. Go for it. See what happens. Play in the street. And what Genesis 3 tells us is that in the moment that we believe this lie and we take this fruit, we, we, we take our life into our own hands, quite literally, everything falls apart. And this is the beginning of sin and death in the human story. This is the connection Jesus is trying to make for you. When he says, if you don't trust in me, you'll surely die in your sin. Jesus is trying to say to us that, look man, sin leads to death. This is how the story will end in sin. It always ends in death. And this is what we see in the story. I don't know how you define sin. Um, you know, kind of in a religious context, we tend to define sin as breaking the rules. But the biblical story defines sin as doing life on your own terms. When you want to do life on your own terms and you want to have life outside of the person and work of God, it always leads to death. Uh, and this is what we read in Genesis chapter 3. If you keep going, tragically, it's hard to read this. But you see this curse over all of creation. And then you see this. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Paul says in Romans 5.12, this thing has spread like the black plague. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
What he's saying is like, look, man, if it had been you in the garden, you would have done the same thing. Because you and I, myself included, I choose to do life on my own terms all day, every day. It's a constant battle for me. And so Paul says, because of that, everybody's infected. We've all got this cancer. We've all got this disease. And everybody is dying. Bad news? It's very bad news. But, you know, the reason why Jesus warns us is because he loves us. You ever thought about that? If you're driving on the road and there's like a sign that says sharp turn, right, or dead end, that's there because it's trying to preserve your life. It's a very loving thing, whoever put that there, right? They're trying to save your life. This is a warning sign plopped down in the middle of the road of your story. And God is saying, pay attention to this. Unless you trust in me, you will surely die. And of course, all of us are going to die a physical death, uh, barring some kind of sudden death. What Genesis 3.19 is saying that ironically, in order to die, all you have to do is live long enough and things will expire. Our bodies will begin to wear out, stop working break down, and we will enter into the labor of death and dying. And here's what's ironic to me. Uh, we all know the story is not supposed to end that way. I mean, that's, that's the thing, man. The reason we cry, like regardless of your worldview, we kind of live in this secular Western worldview that says, hey, man, death is normal and natural. It's just part of life. Nobody actually believes that because nobody actually lives that way. It's the reason you grieve and you cry over death. Something in us tells us the story is not supposed to end this way. And that's why, like Harold, all of us live our lives trying to change the end of the story. Avoid, escape the problem of death. In, uh, in 1974, Ernest Becker wrote this book where he won the Pulitzer Prize for this book called The Denial of Death. And in this book, he talks about how underlying all of our anxieties is what he calls death anxiety. So he says what's behind all of our distractions... What's behind all of our obsession with youth and anti-aging technology is this fundamental denial of death. We live our lives under the illusion of immortality. And he says it's why whenever you get a phone call or you see a tragedy on the news or you pass by a fatal car accident, there's this deep-seated psychological defense mechanism that goes off in your mind that says, well, that'll never happen to me. You know, I'm more cautious than that. They must have been driving recklessly. Well, they don't take care of themselves very well. What do they expect? They don't exercise. They don't eat well. They don't sleep well. They overwork. Like, what do they, what do they expect? Do you see what we're doing in that? We're, what Becker is saying is that we are still living, the, believing the lie that if you do life on your own, you will not surely die. Uh, how many of you have heard of the standing desk? Anybody heard of the standing desk? Oh, yeah. D-Money back there. I bet you have one. If anybody does. So um, the standing desk is this thing where it's literally a desk that you stand at and you work. And what's driving the standing desk is there's this phenomenon a couple of years ago where all this research was saying that we sit down too much and it's killing us. And so it's better for your brain and better for your body to stand while you work. And so there's these standing desks. And there was an article that came out called, Are You Sitting Yourself to Death? And I love this man, this columnist, uh, Jen Bell, who's just really sarcastic, or Jen Dahl, really sarcastic. She wrote this article in response to this, and here's what she says. I'll put it on the screen for you. She says, one of the most aggravating things about American culture and the cyclical proliferation of articles on the Internet that go right along with American culture is the belief that somehow through our own personal concerted efforts, 
if we really, really try, we can keep from dying. Take the United States headline, are you sitting yourself to death? Well, maybe, but you're also standing, walking, driving, drinking, and breathing yourself to death. You're exercising yourself to death. You're bone brothing yourself to death. You're kale eating yourself to death. You're healthying yourself to death. You're healthying me to death. And even if you don't do any of those things, barring any fountain of youth discoveries, you're still going to shuffle off this mortal coil at some point in time. We are all living ourselves to death. Despite our best intentions, death is absolutely coming. Do not believe the lie that you will not surely die. One more quote, man, I can't help it. This is uh, Barbara Carnes, who uh, is an expert in hospice care. And she wrote a book on how to live with a terminally ill disease. And so Barbara Carnes says this. She says, from the moment we're born, we begin to die. The death process starts from the moment you come out of the womb. And she says, the only difference between a healthy person and a seriously ill person is that the seriously ill person is reminded every day that we aren't going to live forever. The healthy person, and we really don't know just how healthy anyone is, lives with the illusion that they are going to live forever. Three times in John chapter 8, Jesus interrupts you with a warning sign because he loves you. And he says, do not believe the lie that you will not surely die. Trust in me, or you will surely die in your sins. And what Jesus is saying is that there's another way to die. Everybody dies. There's only two ways to die. You either die in your sins, or you die in the Savior. Jesus says, trust in me. Believe that I am who I say that I am. I love this passage, this verse, man. Revelation 14, 13 says... Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. What does it mean to die in the Lord? What does it mean to die in the Savior? It means that you believe in Him. Jesus says, believe in me. Which is not just an intellectual assent to the facts. It's trusting yourself over to Jesus. It's giving yourself to Jesus. It's actually embracing Him that He is who He says He is. The Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the light of the world. It's believing that He knows how to run your life better than you. I love this man. Like a good physician, Jesus is actually diagnosing the root problem for you. And it's only solution. If you find out that you're really, really sick and you go to the doctor, do you want him to only treat the physical symptoms? Or do you want him to deal with the disease and the cancer beneath the surface that's killing you? Jesus is giving you your chart, so to speak. And he's diagnosing you. And he's saying, sin leads to death. There's another way to die. Trust in me. And what he's saying is that in the biblical story, in the the good news of Christianity, death is not the end of the story. There's this glorious promise in Genesis 3.15, right after the curse of sin uh, and death. There's this amazing promise where God says, hey, a Savior is going to be born into the world. And he's going to crush the head of this serpent that lied to you and that stole your life from you. And what that's saying is that's a very poetic way of saying this Savior is going to deal with your sin, your root problem. And he's going to save you and he's going to give you life in relationship with me. So, but there's this, there's this mind-blowing thing that you can't miss. It's crazy. It says that this Savior is going to crush the head of the serpent, 
but the serpent is going to bite the heel of this Savior. Now, that's puzzling to me. This is what Mark Dever calls the great riddle of Christianity. Anybody in the ancient world knows what it means. A snake bite to the heel means you're dead. A snake bite to the heel means you're dead. So how is this Savior in this glorious promise going to save us from sin and death if he himself is dead? How is he going to crush the head of this serpent if he's been killed by this serpent? Don't you understand what Jesus has done? Jesus has rewritten the ending of the story for you. So this, this, is, this is what's mind-blowing about Christianity. This is what Jesus is inviting you to believe right now this morning. Um, Professor Jules was kind of half right when he said to Harold, he said, hey man, death is imminent, death is inevitable, death is inescapable, but he was wrong. Death is not imminent. Jesus killed it. Jesus came and the gospel says that he lived a life that we failed to live, a sinless life and perfect obedience to God the Father, and then he took our death on the cross and he actually died the death that we deserve to die and Jesus paid the price for our sin. And then for three days, he laid cold, dead in a grave. And on the third day, he was raised. See, in the true story of human history, the hero does in fact die, but the good news is he does not stay dead. And Jesus says, look, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you follow me, you will not surely die. You will have life and life in my name. Do you believe that? Let me just stop and ask you a question, man. Where, where are you putting your hope? Where, where is it that you are placing your hope for your redemption, for your joy, for your peace? Because everybody's doing it. Where, where, where are you looking for hope? What, what's your hope? Like, what's the one thing in your mind that if you could, as long as you have it, or if you could just have it, you believe your life would be complete? You believe you'd be okay? You believe your story would have a happy, redemptive ending? A job? marriage, a relationship, like an achievement, an accomplishment, a child. Do you realize that in the end, death takes all of that away from you? Leo Tolstoy said that's what drove him to the verge of suicide. It's just realizing that everything that gives my life meaning, death strips it all away from you. There's only one thing that death can't take from you. Jesus says, look, man, I've stared death in the face for you, and I killed it. And Jesus took your terminal illness, the sin beneath the surface, and he terminated it. I guess what's amazing, man, on the cross, death and sin were turned back on themselves. Do you believe that? Jesus says, trust in me. I'm the only hope beyond the grave. And here's what's amazing. Jesus has rewritten the story. We know for a fact, Jesus says, hey, look, the story doesn't end in death. Death doesn't have the final say for you if you're trusting in Christ. Because Jesus promises that, and the resurrection guarantees that he will return, and he will wipe away every tear, and, 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 he, and death shall be no more, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and he will make all things new. And here's what's awesome about that, man. That doesn't mean that's not just some kind of future glorious reality, but, but through the Holy Spirit, that, that glorious good news has become real now, in real time. And now that you know how the story ends, it changes how you live. It changes how you live now. 
And knowing that Jesus has conquered death for you empowers you to live in a meaningful way right now, which is how you die well. How you die well is you trust in Jesus as your only hope beyond the grave, and you live for Jesus now. And so I wanna, what I want to do real quick is I just want to hit a couple of things, real practical things, um, and, that, that, and talk about like how do we actually put this on the ground and live out our trust in Jesus in real time? What does it look like to die well by living well for Jesus now? Okay, so four things real quick. Uh, dying well means, first and foremost, you trust in Jesus, but it means you live and you die treasuring Jesus. You can't trust Jesus without treasuring Jesus. So the greatest commandment in all the scriptures is to love God, to enjoy Him, to delight in Him. And when you make Jesus your treasure, then you no longer understand death as loss, but death becomes gain for you. Um, Here's what I mean. One writer says it like this. He says, How do we die well, horrible as death is, as sudden and shocking as it may be? We die well when we call death gain, which is not about what death gets us, but what death can't take away. There's a major difference here between false gain and true gain. For the Christian, death is not gain because it gives us something great, but because even though it takes away everything else, it can't take away Jesus. Death is gain because when all is lost, we still have all we ever really wanted. And now we have Him in a deeper, richer experience that, as the Apostle Paul says, is far better. And therefore, instead of this meaning that we've now made friends with death or that death is somehow not as bad, it means that one day we will mock it and we will celebrate its final destruction. As I said just a second ago, man, death takes away everything from you, but it can't take Jesus from you. Tim Keller tells a story about counseling a guy in his church who lost everything. He's a modern-day Job. Guy lost his family, uh, lost his wife and his kids in one accident. He walked away and survived. Uh, lost his job through the grieving process because he wasn't able to go back to work. Lost his friends because they didn't know how to handle his pain and suffering. And the guy said, the only like saving grace through this is that in losing everything, I found what my soul really wanted in the first place. And he said, you know what's amazing is that we, we understand on a cognitive level that Jesus is all we need to get through this life. If you're a Christian, you would raise your hand and you would say that. Jesus is all I need to get through this life. But he says, you really don't understand that Jesus is all you need until you understand that Jesus is all you have. Death becomes gain when you treasure Jesus. Do you treasure your stuff or do you treasure the Savior? Do you treasure your accomplishments or do you treasure God in the flesh? Do you treasure the gifts God has given you or do you treasure the giver? Look, man, make Jesus your treasure and you literally cannot lose. Like death can't take anything away from you. It goes from loss to gain. That's how you die well. Uh, dying well also means that you live and die loving people well. Uh, the first greatest commandment in Scripture is to love God. What's the second greatest commandment in all of Scripture? Yeah, man, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I read a couple of books this week um, from medical professionals on dying. And Dr. Ian Bayek says in his book, Dying Well, that... 
what matters to you most at the end of life are people, not possessions. And what matters to you most at the end of life is what matter, should matter to you the most now. What is, what is that Tim McGraw song, Live Like You're Dying? Is that, what, you, know, you guys know that song? Oh, nailed, nailed it. There's the chorus. We could sing it together, I suppose. Luke, make that happen when you come back up. Um, hey, man, forget all the skydiving stuff he talks about in that song. When he gets to the relational stuff in that song, that's the gold. What does he say in that song? He says, hey, I spoke sweeter, I loved deeper, and I gave the forgiveness I've been denying. I hope someday you'll get the chance to live like you're dying. Guess what? Some days now, because you're dying. So if you want to live like you're dying, you've got to do the relational stuff. You've got to love people well. Dr. Ian Bayek says it's medically proven that suffering is prolonged and death is prolonged on your deathbed when there's unresolved relational pain and relational conflict, which is why he says make peace in your relationships now. And by the way, man, he's just preaching the Bible because the Bible says that. The Bible says don't wait to your deathbed in order to start loving people well. Uh, Matthew 5.23 says if, you, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, oh my gosh, man, I offended this dude. This dude has something against me. Jesus says, stop what you're doing. It'd be better to leave a church service and get up right now and go and make peace with that person. Maybe you need to do that. Like maybe you need to leave now and go call somebody and make peace with them before you take your last breath. Jesus says, this is important, man. There's a sense of urgency in this. You keep going, you see places like Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give an opportunity for the devil. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. And let me speak to you parents who are not fully present to your children. Men in the room who are overworking, overcommitted, you come home and you kick your feet up and you sit in front of a screen. You better start paying attention to your children. John Foreman, uh, who's coming here to do a parenting conference in September, he said to Jared and I had a conference call with him recently, and he said, Guys, you you need to learn this secret right now. Uh, The people you go home to at night are the people who will be with you on the day that you die. Not the church you pastor, not the people you work with. Listen, these relationships are crucial. In order to die well, you must live well. In order to live well, you must love well. Love God. Treasure Him. And flowing out of that place, love people and live at peace with people. Third, if you want to live well and die well, You need to understand, as we've said multiple times, that all of life is a gift. Every breath is a gift. Mark Dever says that one of the most godless and secular things that we do as Christians is that we expect to wake up tomorrow. Like, I just expected to get out of bed this morning. I didn't roll, most of the time we roll out of bed and check our phones. We don't roll out of bed and give thanks to God. Like, there's a sense of entitlement that that I live with. Okay, I'll put, I'll, I don't know about you, but I'll put this on myself. And I just kind of expect to go to sleep and wake up. And I just kind of expect to take my next breath. And, and in order to live well and die well, we need to understand that all of life is a gift. James says this, Come now, you who would say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Tomorrow I'm going to get up and go to work and make bank. 
He says, look, dude, you don't have a clue what tomorrow will bring. What is your life anyways? Consider it for just a second. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You've got to embrace the reality that all of life is a gift of God's grace. When you wake up tomorrow morning, when you wake up in the morning, start practicing this discipline where you say, first, before you check your phone, before you go to the bathroom, before you, whatever, man, just say thank you. Because you didn't have to get up, but God told you to get up. It's the secret to dying well. If you practice that now, you'll be thankful on your deathbed. And you won't look back with a bunch of regrets. Last thing, and we'll close. Dying well means you live and you die with gospel purpose and intentionality. Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. It's a gift. Don't waste it. And you've been, you've been placed in people's lives, in these relational circles, where people are literally perishing in their sins. And if you're a Christian, God has entrusted you with this precious gospel and empowered you with this life-giving spirit to go and bring life where there's death, light where there's darkness, salt where there's decay. Go with gospel purpose and intentionality and bring life to a city that is dark and dying. It's the secret to living well and dying well. And of course, none of this matters apart from trusting in Jesus. Unless you trust in me, you will surely die in your sins. And this is what's amazing. Jesus goes on to say this in chapter 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see death. And what he means is that you won't physically die. He means that death is not ultimately the end of the story for you in Jesus. The only way Harold's story, the only way your story or my story finds a happy, redemptive ending is if it ends in the Savior and not in your sin. Jesus has ripped the fangs out of death. He took the snake bite for you so that you don't have to. He took the full force of the venom of evil in order to save you from your sins and give you life. Such that Paul says this in Romans, where's your sting, death? It's been swallowed up in victory. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? Jesus has taken it for you. And if you believe that, you're a Christian. If you trust that, you're a Christian. And you'll be able to say this. I'm going I'm to close. Finally, I do promise I will close with this quote from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody says this. It's a famous line. He was an evangelist in the 18th century. And he says, quoting on this verse, um, he says, Someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. See, I was born of the flesh in 1837, but I was born of the spirit in 1856. And that which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Jesus says he has stripped the fangs out of death. And if you believe in me, you will not surely die.